is the deal with these thingies. <laughs> are they like, okay, so the people, people are waving. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel at the time. And they're like, okay, here comes a king. Let's wave these little thingies around. Why, what the heck? Why are they doing that? They kind of look like swords. Are they like waving swords? They're like, here we go. We're the army for this new king. All right. Awesome. Or are they like, here, Jesus, okay, get some fresh air. Cool you down a little bit. Okay. Blow off. That donkey's kind of smelly. We'll get that out of here. Are they like trying to give him some shade with their palm branches? And then they're also like chucking their, their robes and their coats on the ground in the street. This is before plumbing. The street is also the sewer. They throw their coats on it and they're probably going to get parasites from it. <laughs> they're like, oh, my mom made this, handmade this robe. I'm putting it in front of the king. How do they know like how to do all this stuff? They just like, oh, this is what we do when a king comes in. Maybe they had... Maybe they're like expecting other kings and they've done it before. There were, there were a bunch of people who claimed to be messiahs. I don't know if they did it for those people too or what. But Jesus was the real deal apparently. And so all the good kings, this is what the kings did. They came into Jerusalem, right, through a gate. Every king would come through a gate. People, you know, there's a procession. Everybody's freaking out. It's like bigger deal than a celebrity. <laughs> but this is the kingy thing to do. But up until this point in the gospel stories, hasn't Jesus been doing non-kingy things? Like didn't, were people thrown off? Like he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, which today would be like hanging out with like ISIS or drug dealers parties with drug dealers. He turns water into wine. That's kind of weird. Like, I don't think he wasn't like, here's my king thing to do. I'm going to get this party going. But then he also, he also does a bunch of kingy things before his entrance into Jerusalem. Like, he feeds 5,000 people. Why would they need feeding? Like, what's... They're, they're actually... The king they have is starving them by taxing them so highly. And they're literally starving to death. And Jesus is like, here's some food. They're like, I like this king. He's feeding us. He's not starving us. That's a kingy thing to do. But kings, kings have thrones, right? When I think of thrones, I think of like <laughs> Game of Thrones, basically. <laughs> the throne that's like made out of swords and everybody's trying to get it. To rule over the world or whatever. But they're vying for power. And everybody at that time was basically under kings. They were ruled by kings. Everything was a kingdom. Through, for however long they remembered, it was the cycle of kings for everybody. Kings and kingdoms. And the kings are always vying for power, taking each other over changing laws, changing the gods, all this stuff. But we, we kind of have kings today too, but our kings aren't like the ones sitting on thrones necessarily, maybe in an oval office, <laughs> not really. But they tend to be the ones we admire or something that we admire or look to for security, 
or gather a sense of belonging from. They tend to be things that we look to for comfort or connection. But let, okay, let's go back to thrones. So there's like medieval thrones, right? Think of the king of England sitting on a throne in the medieval times. Like people come in and they're like, what do we do? He's like, this is what we do. There's Roman thrones, right? Caesar's sitting on the throne at the time of Jesus. He's ruling over the known world, basically, from his throne. Then we go back further in the Bible. There's Egyptian thrones. Pharaohs were super powerful in Egypt. Babylonian thrones. That was also like almost as powerful as the Roman Empire. It's crazy. And the Babylonian kings are ruling from their thrones. But these kings and these thrones all kind of represented this conquest, this violence, and the kings are going for prestige and power. And they're also, from their thrones, they're kind of dishing out uh, sort of like almost a unification, but they dish out taxes so that they can be comfortable and secure. Um, they set up borders, right? They set up a military. All these things from their thrones. So let's look also back in the Bible. Way back, let's go back to the first kings in the Bible. And the kingy things that they do. The first, well the first king really is Adam. Adam's made in the image of God. That's a kingy thing to say. Okay, for for. An Israelite who wrote the Old Testament, whoever was going on, whoever was doing that stuff, image of God is a kingy thing to say. So Adam's made to be a kingy thing. But then we'll go forward a little bit, and there's Pharaoh. We'll skip over all the way to Pharaoh, and this is the first major king with an empire that's powerful enough to like, have more than just a little tiny city-state. Pharaoh's a king, and he wants to build his nation's economy. He gets a bad rap. He's basically the worst guy in the Bible up to this point, by far. So, it's a bad rap for a reason. But look at his motivations. He wants to build his nation's economy and protect national security. He gets scared of these Israelite slaves. And these are his, these are his motives, economy and security. And he redefines good and evil to the point where he's like, okay, this is how we're going to accomplish this. Sounds good, right? National security and economy. But he accomplishes that goal by slaughtering babies. And that was his king, kingy way of doing things. Let's fast forward so Israel gets out of Egypt, they escape Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does the dead man's float. Not the most successful king. <clears throat> Fast forward to Israel's first king. They see the nations all around them, they're like, yeah, kings, that's like a good system. We're a nation, we're a bunch of people. Everybody, every other nation has kings, that's like how this works, this cycle of kings. We should get one of those. We need to look to someone for security and belonging and Acceptance and prestige. So, in First and Second Kings, 
in First and Second Samuel, this prophet, God's guy, anoints Saul. So Saul is an anointed one. Saul, that, the word for anointed one is Messiah. So Saul's a Messiah. He's a king. Messiah is always a kingy thing. Saul gets a bad rap too. He thinks he's going to bring a criminal to justice. And we always see him as this kooky guy who's lost his mind, throwing spears at walls. But he's trying to bring this criminal to justice, right? Criminal of the state to justice. He's trying to kill David. But who's David really? Let's go to the next king. He's the next king, right? He gets anointed also. So the oil goes on him. The prophet anoints him and he becomes a Messiah, an anointed one. But then David blows it too. Not the best king. He does bring security and safety to Israel. This is like their most glorious time as a nation. They have the most security, the most wealth, the most prestige among other nations. But he does it through violence. And he wants to build a house for God. And God's like, uh, you're too violent, man. We can't do it. But God makes a deal with him anyway. And it's a deal that God holds up. Nobody ever holds up their end of the deal in the Bible, basically. God always holds up his end of the deal. And he makes the deals and he keeps the deals with the kings. And then, so we'll move on. Next one, Solomon. Solomon's the next king. The people are like, all right, Solomon's going to be awesome. Here we go. He's a smart dude. But Solomon's even worse, actually, in First and Second Kings. Right? He starts gathering up all these women. And at that time, kings used marriages and wives and stuff mostly as a political move to gain safety and security or economy or other things. He also, he also starts gathering up women just for his own desires to exploit them, to exploit their bodies and objectify, which is like way back when God set up Israel right after the Exodus. He's like, okay, kings should not be like Pharaoh. Don't use people for profit. Don't use women for their bodies. And then he also says, don't use, don't accumulate a bunch of horses and chariots. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Shouldn't like a king ride around on a horse? <laughs> it's kind of a kingy thing to do. But the idea is horses and chariots were purely a military power move. Nobody could stop a cavalry, right? So he starts building up this huge army and starts to try to gain security through military power, which is a no-no, according to God. It's like if, it's like if we just like start building up all these drones, right? Who's going to fight drones? You just go in, you don't have to risk anything, and you conquer indiscriminately. Then after Solomon, there's a bunch more bad kings. It's like all downhill. Well, I don't even know if they ever got uphill ever, but it's just all downhill from there. And during this time of like the, the rest of the bad kings of Israel, it's a cycle, but it's a feudal cycle. And during this time, there are these guys 
who are super important in the story of Israel and the story of the world, actually, because it's the first people who are self-corrective inside of a kingdom. There are these people who create these texts that become formative for a community, even for the kings. And the prophets basically speak truth to power. And they, they don't say, hey, our God is the best, and we're going to take over the world because our king is God, and our God is the best, and our religion is the best religion. They're saying, we're blowing it, our kings are the worst, and they're exploiting people, and um, not taking care of the poor, and the immigrant, and it's crazy. It's the first people who ever look at themselves and say, we need to (laughs) reframe our whole being, transform ourselves, our entire nation. They introduced this idea of restorative justice, which Jim has talked about a little bit. The prophets are the ones who, they don't just point to Jesus and be like, Here's a verse about Jesus, a Messiah, and that's all you need to know about the prophets. They're super critical in the entire story of the Bible because they introduce an idea of God bringing things back together as his justice, not just destroying the bad. It's this um, reconciliation, kind of a rebuilding after we mess it up. So, reconciliation is the goal. And they introduced this idea that it's not just about going to heaven when you die or getting out of hell, even. It's more about you've just, the king, the nation, the entire misdirected worship is creating a hell right here. And how do we reframe this space to be God's space? It's heaven all the way to heaven and it's hell all the way to hell. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit more. Jerusalem, the kings are blowing it. The prophets are like, you're blowing it. And Nebuchadnezzar comes, a new king, a Babylonian king. He takes siege, he comes in, enters the capital as a king probably sets up, because this is what they usually do, enter the temple, after they enter the capital, set up their God, and they're saying, our God's better than your God. And most kings are saying also, I am God. So he comes in, and that's what a kingy, kingy thing is to do. He does the kingy thing. Then the, and during this whole time, the prophets are taken off, everybody's taken off to Babylon, the prophets are still trying to figure this out. They're like, well, the temple is pretty much broken. What do we do? Where's God? Like, how are we still a nation? We don't even have a king. We got to worship Nebuchadnezzar. Then they come back to Jerusalem after the exile, and they're still trying to figure it out. They're like, where's the glory that was once there? Where's the thing? And then the Greeks come in, a new king, a Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes, which just means, it literally means God manifest. He comes into the temple after he enters the city and sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, which is the desolating sacrilege, which basically means the temple is completely destroyed and it doesn't work anymore. 
and God's original purpose for it is totally obliterated. And they're trying to figure out, well, now we have this new king. We don't have our own king. And now our God, like our temple, our whole religious system is messed up. Like, what does this mean? And this whole time, they're just being beat down and oppressed. Then, fast forward a little bit more, kind of to the time of Jesus, but right before. And there's Caesar, right? Caesar is the emperor. He has the biggest empire at the point. And people have to say, Caesar is Lord, which they're worshiping Caesar as a god. And the earliest Christians, it's crazy, they say, instead of saying Jesus is Lord, they start saying, I mean, instead of saying Caesar is Lord, they start saying Jesus is Lord, which they, you can see why that's an issue. The whole history up to this point is saying the king is God and the God is king, and that's the throne, and we have to be loyal. If you're not, they could kill you. But Romans 10, if you want to look into it, is a little bit more about how to be revolutionary without overthrowing the government and then becoming the oppressor again. So then under Caesar is Herod, like the local king there. So remember back to Pharaoh, what Pharaoh did. And there's a very intentional move on the gospel writer's part during this narrative. Herod wants to protect security. He hears about a new king coming. And he's scared that he'll take his throne. So he wants to protect security and his authority. And how does he do it? How does he bring authority? He slaughters babies. So the people of Israel are starving. They're like, please just give us a king. That's okay. That's good at what he does. (laughs) So you can see why they're freaking out. They got the palm fronds out. They're psyched. But what are they expecting? This is why Chronicles is super important. So why have two accounts of the same kings in the Bible? So you have first and second Samuel and first and second Chron- uh, first and second Kings, and that's the narrative that we've been following here. Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Bible, and that's on purpose. They had a reason for doing that. It's super important in understanding Jesus' story, and we don't ever even read it. Or if we do, we're like, "Yeah, this is pretty much the same. This is pretty much the same." Skimming through, okay, names, all right, okay, whatever. The reason for Chronicles is this messianic hope that's set up. In Chronicles, unlike in 1st and 2nd Kings, the king is the priest and the priest is the king. And they don't fully get it. They're like, I think this is what's happening. This is what God is pointing towards, but I don't really know. But this priest king brings back the glory to the temple. That's what they're hoping for. David and Solomon in Chronicles never mess up. They're perfect priest kings in Chronicles. So then Solomon, there's this important narrative, which we were actually, Jim took us there, so we got a little bit of Chronicles. 
But this is an invitation to go deeper. The king Solomon enters the temple in Chronicles, Second Chronicles 7. And glory of God arrives. And it's like so hot and so bright and so crazy that the priests, the religious people who have certain jobs, they can't even do their jobs. They're, so the temple, they're like, okay, what is the function of this? All this whole system, if we have all these people to do their jobs and do sacrifices and do the, all this stuff, and then God shows up and they can't even do it. And this is this big promise from God, actually. So the hope of Chronicles is that there's going to be this perfect king-priest who perfectly represents God. God. And God to the world and the world to God. And then this masterfully crafted the Old Testament, basically the Hebrew Scripture, is like this genius, amazing, it's hard to understand, but it is like the best story ever. The narrative is perfect. And then it doesn't have an ending. <laughs> what story doesn't have an ending? It just leaves you hanging. You're just dangling. You're like, what the heck? So we fast forward to the beginning of Holy Week. That's today. Holy Week, that's, we're starting Holy Week right now. And it's this entrance of the king into the capital and then into the temple and then to his throne. That's the process that kings go through all the time. In the Synoptic Gospels in Mark and Luke, Jesus enters the city and then goes straight to the temple. In John, he does it earlier in his ministry. But the Synoptic Gospels follow this process, this very kingy thing to do. He enters the capital city like a king. Then he enters the temple like any good king to be anointed and dedicated or whatever. Well, I think his anointing was probably more uh, his baptism with John the Baptist. So he's kind of, I think that's what that's about. But these questions are hard. <laughs> so ask the hard questions of Scripture. So he enters the temple. After he enters the city, he goes to the temple. And he doesn't have a priest pour oil on his head. He doesn't go and offer sacrifices. He doesn't set up an image of a God that's better than the God that they have. What does he do? He starts flipping everything over. He messes everything up. He messes up the whole religious system. <laughs> He's like, this is, not, this is not how it goes, people. He is the glory of God, right? This is the moment that Chronicles is pointing to. Jesus enters the temple. The glory is there, right? God's presence is back. And he starts messing up all the priest's jobs. Because if the people can't buy the sacrifices, then they can't offer them, and then the priests are left with nothing to do. He makes it so the good religious people can't do their job. And their job is basically making deals with God, is how they're kind of looking at it. They're like, okay, God, I have this to offer you. I'll give you this sacrifice of 
a dove or some grains or whatever, my best stuff, and then you'll give me something in return. It's manipulative. It's identical to when we like treat God as a cosmic vending machine. We're like, okay, God, here's the coin of some of my time. Here's the coin of some attention, the right words. I gave up this thing. I gave up chocolate for Lent. And I hope you, and then you push the button, I hope you give me some money for a car. Or maybe healing for my dad. Or whatever. Jesus flips the tables over and the money goes everywhere. All the coins are scattered everywhere. The cosmic vending machine is not going to work. Everybody is expecting a Chronicles sort of Messiah. A king. Jesus is the king. He's entered the capital, gone to the temple, and everybody's kind of disoriented now. They're like, okay, we did the palm and the jackets on the sewage, and then you went to the temple, and we're, I don't know what the temple thing was all about. And then he goes to his throne. What he's saying is there have been idols in the temple the whole time. People are basically worshiping their projects. But to understand what he's doing, we have to look to his throne. In, in all the Gospels, Jesus' enthronement is the cross. No other king ever sat on this throne. It doesn't make any sense. But John of the Cross says, one who does not seek the cross of Christ isn't seeking the glory of Christ. Because the king's glory comes from his throne. Mark 8 Mark is real tough. It's tough for the disciples. They just get beat down all the time. But it's just a hard book. In Mark, this king, as his enthronement, will suffer. He'll be uncomfortable. He'll be rejected by everybody's image of successful people. Be humiliated. And then he's going to die. And Peter's like, ah, I'm pretty sure that's not a throne. And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so kings, kings to Peter and everybody else are Nebuchadnezzar's, Caesar's, David's. And Jesus is flipping it over. It's more than one dimension. He's, it's... You can't even conceive because it's so many dimensions. But our projects, which is what the cross is about, are generally security or, or comfort or the mitigation of fear or connection. We want a feeling of connection, like a mitigation of shame or grief. We want to feel connected to each other and to nature, which is why a lot of us live here. Or our projects are trying to belong or getting some worth or some power or trying to mitigate anger, which is related. 
But the cross, Jesus' throne, his system in his borders are basically saying, your project is futile. It has to die. Actually, you have to die. I have to die. Only then can you participate in the union of everything that God has made and union with God. That's the goal. It's saying separation is an illusion, right? Jesus is stretched out and he's holding two things and joining them together. Hanging between, hanging in tension. Our idols that are, whatever they were in the temple or whatever, where he flips over the whole system, our idols are projects. They're our projects and they're separating us from each other and from God. And these projects are like, neurologically, it's survival, basically. But you have to, it doesn't make any sense and you have to give it up. And then systems, we create these systems which are generally these projects expanded and, and, and amplified to institutional levels or political levels or national levels, kingly levels. But, and think of the seven deadly sins, right? This like greed, lust, pride, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. We're such an individualized culture. We're hyper-individualized. And so we tend to shame these sins individually. Like if we see it in an individual, like, oh, that's bad. But at a corporate or communal level, we're like totally blind to it. And Jesus is like, his throne is a total destruction of those projects at every level, from the individual up to the biggest scale. And just trying to give it up, like if you're just sitting there and you're like, I'm going to give this up, I'm giving up my project, I'm just going to be okay with my image, or I'm going to be okay with being uncomfortable, or not striving to survive or get power, it's almost impossible, right? Because it is survival. Your brain's like, I got to survive, I got to survive, I got to survive. And when you see that and you can observe it, that's what the psalmist is talking about when he says, my sin is always before me. My project keeps running through my mind and I cannot stop it. And our projects are literally the illusion of separation. If we knew what the cross does as a kingdom and what God, what God is saying about himself and revealing about himself through Jesus, then we don't have to like replay the narrative in our head of survival because we're connected, right? Like just look at Genesis 3. This is like the fall or whatever. Adam and Eve, they start making, what is their project? Their project is fig leaves. They're trying to project them into clothes. Fig leaves are not for wearing. <laughs> are part of this beautiful thing that God has made that Adam and Eve are supposed to tend. They're supposed to garden it, right? And they're supposed to like give it some water when it needs water. They're supposed to relate to it. They're supposed to be like, okay, it needs this. 
And now, since we've been tending it, it gives us something. And we're, it's mutual, right? You can eat the figs. But they start using it and they try to separate each other. That's a project. Then fast forward to Abraham. And God says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your tribe. And then I'll bless the kings that come, even though that's a long way away, that are part of your tribe. And then I'll bless everybody through you. So the birth of Israel is essentially God saying, you're not just here for you. That's what all the other nations are thinking. They're like, we're going to take over the world. And the stronger we get, the more land we need and the more power we need. And we're going to be the best. We're here for us. But Israel's different. You're not just here for you. You're here for your tribe. But you're here for everybody. And everything in the universe. Big, big picture. The universe is big. It's already, even in Abraham, it's an upside down kingdom. It's more than one dimension. And this king on his throne has shown us how to live and then how to die. And then, really, our projects, whether they're systems or individual, are the failing to live under this king's rule. Right? Our idols that Jesus is flipping the tables over about are our projects. But if this king on this throne decrees that his people must be people of the cross, or in other words, people of suffering, being uncomfortable, humiliation, rejection, powerlessness, and death, it's not fun. And he did this by his own example. Usually we choose comfort or status over against the king's way. And then whose kingdom are we in? We're outside the borders and we're separating each, each other from each other and each other from the creation and each other from God and ourselves. It's not, so this kingdom isn't just a kingdom of, of moralizing. That's not the point. Moralizing is li- like trying to do the right thing. I just got to do the right thing. That's another project. That's the same project playing it out in different ways. Trying to be the better person. Basically, there's nothing, there's nothing to admire about our king. You can't admire this way. Because this, this way is humiliation. That is shame. That's why Peter's like, no way, man. I think Peter's project was probably shame (laughs) or image. (laughs) Trying to do the right thing and say the right thing. You can't admire Jesus. Kierkegaard says you can't admire Jesus. You can only follow him. And following that, oh man, that's giving up projects. Jesus is showing us that the only way to help people is by being vulnerable. Vulnerable to the point of death in every, every aspect of your life. To the point of humiliation, 
to the point of complete loss of security, complete loss of belonging. Being vulnerable is risking the loss of all these things. And so Jesus is offering himself as a mirror, right? The angled mirror. That's the king's job, is the angled mirror in Scripture, which is crazy. Well, actually, that's kind of what people thought of kings at the time. But this is like a mirror that we didn't expect. It's actually the original plan for humans as royal things, right? So he reflects God to us and us to God, just like we're supposed to. We're supposed to be angled mirrors. But the religious and political leaders looked in that mirror and did not like what they saw. They expected to see something else. And they probably saw themselves. And instead of deciding to let God transform them or be transformed, they smashed the mirror. So we shouldn't be surprised if we give up our projects and become clear mirrors if people want to smash us. And yeah, if we just get shattered... So we are in the kingdom right now, our projects and blown up to a big scale, create a kingdom of military consumerism, exploitation of the poor, and objectification of other people, of things, of all of God's creation. And that's not the kingdom that this is. <laughs> but look back to Genesis 1. Creation is good, and we're supposed to tend it and relate to it. It's not an object. It's not something where you crack open and you get some gold or you get some resources out of. It's something to relate to. In, in the Bible, it is more our mother than our property. God is trinity than God is relationship. And if God forgives which is what this is about, then every time he does that, he's saying the relationship is more important than the rules. He's valuing relationship over against rules <laughs> or moralizing or projects. But that doesn't, like, it doesn't eliminate obedience. Relationship and obedience are related. This is what we, also what we learn from Jesus. Love is perfect obedience, right? Love is relationship. Think what Jesus said. What is, like what the guy said, what is the most important commandment? What is the most important commandment? And he said, love God and love your neighbor. So all of creation's flourishing is our flourishing. You can't have one without the other. You can't be like, I'm going to take that guy's flourishing and get some more flourishing for me. It's actually... You take someone else's flourishing or you take something else's flourishing and the overall flourishing level goes down for both. It's actually dehumanizing to try to take flourishing and accumulate it. You really learn that in relationship, especially in marriage relationship. So you look at the big picture, 
blow that relationship up to the mountains, to the forests, to the world, to the universe. It's crazy. Like, we're made of the exact same elements as stars. I don't know, like, I don't know if you think of yourself as intimate with a star, but you are. So, what the cross is saying is, if we're not careful, it could become that kings and queens, or the papacy, or offices of bishop, or whatever status you go for, or even nationhood, could become far more important than anything small, local, immediate, concrete, or specific. Our projects are basically us saying, my king is better than your king. Or my religion is better than your religion. But that would substitute personal transformation. Or a sense that God is engaged with the individual or ordinary soul. Which is mysticism. Not mysticism like magical wizard, but mysticism like I can experience God. Like, the divine is here, and it's there, it's everywhere, and you can experience it. If we're not careful, the corporate collective identity could be preferred to a person's own soul or heart. And without truly seeing and valuing individual lives down to the atom, war and violence become almost inevitable. Unless we can see and honor thisness, this scandal of particularity. Jesus was a, a guy. He was a human. And this happened at a particular time, and he had a particular skin color, which probably wasn't white. And he had a particular mom, and he had particular friends. This scandal of thisness expands to a scandal of universal. -ness. And if we can't see and honor that, then religion and politics are just up in the head and they never go deeper to the heart or body. It's holistic. And our community is made of hearts and bodies. And our community isn't exclusive, it includes all nations. In all of creation. The, the rule from this throne reprograms everything down to like string theory small to like big bang big. And our projects are just distractions. So as we enter this Holy Week, hopefully we can observe our projects and not The more energy you give to giving up something, the more power you give that thing over you. But just observing it and then letting it go is letting God and Jesus transform you. So... Hopefully Lent does that for us.
Let's pray. God, we release our ego's survival instinct in all of its forms because of your throne, because of the cross. And help us take humiliation or shame or discomfort or suffering as an opportunity to release those things to you and set up your kingliness through us. Help us be clear mirrors without too much noise going on in our heads. We pray these things in your name because you're on a throne and can rule. (laughs) Amen.